0: Welcome to the Industry 4.0 weekly podcast by 4.0 Solutions for Tuesday, June 27th, 2022 This is a pre-recorded podcast. Uh the guest, the co-host this week and guest, actually it's gonna be a combination of guest and co-host is uh JP Manas. JP, what's up, man? How are you, Walker? Good. Uh I'm glad that we were able to coordinate this. For those of you guys who are listening, it was kind of um, because I'm on sabbatical and I'm writing every day, um, Cheryl was, was like trying to get us coordinated. We were supposed to shoot this last week, I think, right? And then we rescheduled for today. But you were in the Middle East, right? Or where were you?
1: Germany, over in Munich. One of our uh, um, mastermind members uh, had invited me over for an event they they had over there, talking about um, edge architecture and the UNS.
0: Rocking. So today we're gonna we're actually gonna talk about that. We're gonna. The second half of the podcast will be centered around a conversation that JP had uh, with Russ from Tulip in Discord, I think back in December. Um, it's just a good starting conversation around data modeling, information modeling, um, you know, when to go custom, when to go vendor industry specific, specific. So I think it's going to be a good conversation. Well it'll be more technical than normal which seems like that's what people want to see right now. So, but before we do that, let's just do the, the announcements real quick. So for, uh, uh, let me start off by saying this. We, we sponsored a, uh, golf tournament last week in Colorado in Elizabeth, Colorado, the, uh, 17th annual air and space forces mile High chapter charity golf tournament. It was a memorial tournament for, uh, I think it was an air force captain. Um, we were one of the gold sponsors um it was one and a, us and one other company so our logos were like on all the golf balls that everybody got and we sponsored some holes and that kind of thing and the the primary sponsor was a company called light eye um they are a military contractor that makes like some of the most you know state of art state of the art vision systems in the world like all the stuff that's being used in the military uh, we had a chance to meet with those guys. We're actually going to have a couple of meetings to go over how we can use some of that technology and industry, which is really cool. But the the tournament was great. Um, it was really awesome to see just how many people went out and dedicated so much of their time to try and raise money for this uh, this uh, AFA chapter in um, Elizabeth, Colorado. So anyway, I want to give a, a huge thanks to everybody who put on the tournament and for inviting us to... To sponsor and let us participate in the tournament it was a it was an absolute blast we actually have another trip in um colorado coming up in august with the as you guys remember we're sponsoring the shaw classic brian shaw four-time World strongest man he does a strongman competition in colorado i think this is the third or fourth time um third third or fourth annual shaw classic Um, we are one of the title sponsors it's actually the we're sponsoring the deadlift so it's actually the Intellic Integration, 4.0 Solutions, Deadlift. Um, That's August 13th and 14th. We're going to be showcasing a new vision system that we developed that uses technology we've used in industry, but this is really going to be more for the fitness industry. But uh, if you guys want to come out to the the event, we're going to be there the entire weekend. We'll get a chance to hang out with people if they want to come to Colorado. That's going to be in Loveland, Colorado, Uh, August 13th and 14th. You can just Google Shaw classic 2022 um, and to, to look at all the details. A couple other real quick announcements. Um, Our entire team is going to be going to ICC 2022 this year. So the ignition community conference, we're going to be sending literally everybody. (laughs) Um, So if you guys are, ever thinking about going to, to ICC, this will be the year to go. Um, Cause we'll have literally our entire team out there uh, can answer any, any questions you guys want. We can hang out have some beers at the fat rabbit. Um, um, and that is third week in September are done. Let's, let's switch it over to, to JP here. Um, So JP real quick, you're, you're in mastermind and mentorship do you actually do the mentorship or do you just do the mastermind? Just the mastermind portion of it. Got it. So, real quick, why don't you, for the audience who, who doesn't know who you are, why don't you tell us who JP Moniz is? <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, I don't know. Short story uh, I've been working in automation for what, 20 years now, 20 plus years off and on. Um, started, uh, I saw you did the podcast uh, or the video a while ago about um, engineer. Or what makes good engineers, and what, and and much like in that video, I didn't start off in automation. I started off as a welder fitter in a in a test and development lab for for aerospace, and uh, got to sit there and see what you know product development looks like um, from an OEM standpoint. And then uh, um, as they were testing landing gear, they had a lot of this big expensive servo hydraulic. uh, control systems and whatnot. And that's sort of what introduced me into automation and got to work with a lot of young, bright, talented uh, electronics engineers. And and they sort of pointed me down the road and getting into automation and whatnot. So went back to school for automation. Um, Luckily enough, I grew up in sort of the GTA area or greater Toronto area. So there's a, you know, back in, you know, 90s and and 2000s, there's a pretty strong manufacturing base, um, mainly based on automotive. town I grew up in is Oshawa. So they had the GM Oshawa Autoplex. So there was like three car plants in that one area, plus stamping, plus a whole bunch of other stuff and whatnot. So we had a pretty strong culture of, of uh, machine builders and integrators around the area and, and whatnot. And so I went back to school, got my diploma, and then started uh, working as a... Basically a project engineer for the aerospace company, bringing in a thermal spray system for them. Um, but then that was pretty much it. They're traditionally a machine shop, right? So they didn't, you know, automation wasn't a big fancy thing back then for them. So kind of got bored from that.
0: So was this mid 2000s, like 2005, 2000, was it something like that? Or was it a little yeah,
1: early, two, early 2000s? 2000, so 2003 yeah. ish. Okay. Um, so they were looking at some robotics and stuff, but there wasn't enough to sit there and keep me busy and keep me entertained and, and whatnot. And so I um, did a little stint um, uh, sort of at the same time I officially graduated. I actually taught um, the program <laughs> at uh, Durham College. That uh,
0: when, I, when I was reading your bio, I was like, whoa, man, You went, you literally went from graduation to teaching at the same program that you were in, like in a really short window. Yeah, it was
1: just, it was just a matter of circumstance, Uh, a friend of mine, which was the main, one of the main professors, he went on sabbatical because the Durham College contracted with the automation tooling systems at the time to install this, what they call this integrated manufacturing center, which was basically upgrading the, the automation labs that they had. And the design of it was such that they would actually manufacture a product from basically soup to nuts. Um, in that lab. So they had five axis machining, gantry robots, Bosch pallet transfer lines, RFID, you know, the whole shoot and match. And then, and then uh, there was like eight, um, eight robot cells that the, the lab students can sit there and program and go through their labs and, and programming. And the other neat little thing that they had was, is they modularized the PLC. So you started on micrologics and went to a slick and then went to control logics, but you can basically swap out the control panels and say, you're going to program this cell with a slick or you're going to program the cell with the control logic. So pretty cool that way. And, and, you know, at that time, I mean, that was, that was sort of 2004, 2005 range. You know, and I haven't seen any colleges at that time have that kind of technology there, right? So yeah, I
0: I mean maybe there's gonna be probably some school in Michigan or some some tech school in Michigan or some tech school in, in Chicago or something. But I, I me personally I've never seen it either.
1: Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. A ton of technology there. So if you were the if you were the personality that sit there and, and eat that kind of stuff up, you could you could walk out of there,
0: you know. How old were you when you went back to school? So how long were you welding before you... Three years,
1: um, 21, I think.
0: And how much of a difference do you think that that three years you had working in industry before you started learning automation, how do you think those three years helped you? It was massive. It It was absolutely massive, right? Like even being able to relate.
1: I mean, working in a test lab where we we're sitting there running fatigue tests or endurance tests or, or or, strength tests and all that kind of stuff and then going into strength and materials class or something like that, right? Being able to relate the two. I mean, it's it was phenomenal. Whereas you sit there and see somebody coming straight out of high school and doing strengths of materials and they're like, you know, why am I why am I learning this? And it's like a and b
0: connecting (laughs) you know it's funny i was in i was in college for a long time i mean i you know i uh when i was in colorado this past weekend i had a chance we have two engineers up there and well one of them's one of our architects and then we had another engineer that he brought on board and it was my first time meeting them in person i only had met them remotely and like staff meetings and stuff and it was my first chat chance to meet them in person and we had dinner together um Thursday night, because the golf tournament was Friday, and I was asking them where they went to school, and you know uh, you know all that, and they, they did pretty traditional paths, right they right out of high school, they you know one went to Colorado state Pueblo, right they, they did the traditional four year thing, and then they got their introduction after graduation, right their introduction to the workforce after graduation, and I was telling them my story about how I was originally going to go in the air force and I was delayed enlistment. I wasn't going to go to college, even though I had graduated so high in my senior class. I, I went to college at, at the, out of high school as an afterthought, I was going to go in the air force, but then I developed a B allergy like my senior year. And I didn't know that that would keep me out of the military. And it did. And so like in June of my senior year, I'm like realizing, Oh shit, I can't go in the air force. So I, I did my freshman year in college. And during that freshman year, I, I, was, getting, um, I was getting shots to get rid of my bee sting, bee sting allergy. So then I could go into the Air Force. So I did it one year in college. Then I went into the Air Force. But I had a knee injury while I was in the Air Force. So I was only in the Air Force for a year. Then I came out and I transferred and went to school in North Carolina. And so I was older. Than all the other students, and one of the things I was telling them, and I had worked most of those two years, and one of the things I was telling those guys was, man, that that two years of work that I had before I really jumped into my education made a huge difference. I mean, gave me so much more context about the education, and I wasn't even studying automation. I can't even imagine how much how valuable that three years of being a welder fitter in aerospace played into you being the best automation student, which then translated into you being able to become a professor, right? I mean, and I wonder what my point here is, I wonder why more people don't do that. Like, or why we don't encourage people to do it more. Well, I I think the reason they don't do it is because we don't encourage them to. Why don't we encourage them to work for a year or two and then go to school? And I, I think maybe it's you know, we're afraid they will not go if, if they, if they start working or whatever, but I'd love to hear your thoughts in that sense. You benefited from it directly.
1: Uh, it's funny because um, I have a 19 year old son and a 17 year old daughter. And, and and I fully encourage that type of behavior with my kids. I mean, My son, when he, he did go to college right out of high school because he thought he wanted to do X. Right. And that's like, are you sure? Like give yourself some time and, 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 out and experience something and, and figure it out right because it's also that weird time in your life where where you know a lot's going on right and so so sit there enjoy it figure it out right and then and then see what happens right and you, you don't know what what's gonna sit there and I don't know maybe smack you in the face and say hey I like this right I'm going after that or hey I don't like that and I think I mean our whole society 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 Hates failure, right? Yeah. That's probably a big portion, is is nobody wants to sit there and watch failure happen, right? And I think some levels of failure need to happen, right? Or else, you know, how do you know you don't like something if you don't try it? Right. How how
0: do you how do you learn if you don't fail? I mean, I I mean, do you agree with this? I make this statement all the time. Do you agree with the statement that you know we don't learn from our success? We we learn from our failure we can be successful at something and not have done it right. We could have gotten lucky. Right. Yep. But when you fail, you abs. this is the, the core of the, the scientific method, right? When you fail, you absolutely know your hypothesis was wrong. Right. And then you've got to adjust your hypothesis when you fail. But when you succeed, you haven't confirmed your hypothesis was wrong. Right. There was a, this company I worked with as a, as a consultant many years ago. And, um, the president of that company, he created a culture of ready, fire, aim. He called it ready, fire, aim. Right. And the whole idea was make mistakes, recover quickly. Like he was telling everyone, if you're not making a lot of mistakes, you're not taking enough risk. You're not trying to innovate enough. And that, that was literally the culture. Well, I found out that there's actually a book called ready, fire, aim, which is crazy because I read all the time. I don't know how I never heard of it, but there's this book called ready, fire, aim. And I want, I assume he probably got it from that, but the whole thing was fail, like actively seek out failure because that's how you learn. Right. Absolutely. Let me ask you this question. So you, you went back to school, you studied electromechanical engineering technology at Durham. At that time you went to, you were working at Saffron, right? And yeah. you did this big $1.5 million robot cell for a thermal spray line. Was that your first major automation project?
1: Uh, yep. It was, I mean, there wasn't that much automation to do. There's some robot programming and stuff like that, but that was my first major, um, here's a project, get it installed and figure it out. And everybody sort of walked away and let me have it. And it was like, oh, okay, well, this is fun. And, you know, I had to sit there and get foundations done. And, um, you know, there was stuff involved with, you know, high pressure um, natural gas and all this kind of stuff so there, it was basically you know here's the fire hose start drinking
0: from it figure it all out how long did it take so from kickoff to functional acceptance and you actually, and you signed for the last invoice how long is that
1: not long uh i think maybe six or eight months okay. before got it installed and and, and actually running Right. And then it had, because it was a whole brand new process to that business. It was actually, you know, sort of the whole Aaron Brockovich hexavalent chromium replacement and and whatnot. But there was a development cycle with it. Right. And so they didn't even have it approved to sit there and and for airworthiness on on aircraft components. So they were going through a whole development cycle of of figuring out how to do this and how to process it and, and get it industrialized
0: how big of the team was it you were working on in that project team in
1: terms of
0: yeah, total immediate resources. So maybe they're not all working full time, but what's the total, I mean, obviously you were the guy Asi- who got into the fire aside from,
1: aside from the OEM.
0: Yeah. So Just... it was you. Yeah. Holy shit, man. <laughs> really? Yeah. Wow. So let me ask you this. So uh, you must've had a lot of, um, challenges during that project right a lot of
1: yeah absolutely absolutely i mean there there's things with getting permits in place and and, and getting the right people that qualified to do the work and, and all that kind of Tec- stuff
0: technical but, failures were there any technical failures where uh you were banging your head against a wall for a while before the solution presented itself
1: uh not so much on that one funny enough luck maybe maybe i was lucky enough that one or
0: or good or good
1: (laughs) that one sort of just uh, went and uh, the technical issues on that one were more more on the application of the process than anything else i would sit there and say if if what did i learn the most from that instead of maybe on the capital project side it was process development right and and so i did have luckily enough our our quality manager at the time. He was a, a Samsung guy, Six Sigma guy and whatnot. And so he taught me a ton on this is how you properly develop a process and getting in the DFME, or uh, not DFMEH, sorry, um, design of experiments and, and all that kind of stuff and going through your MSA and, and making sure that everything's actually measuring properly before you even go and design your process
0: and, and all that. kind of so stuff. So were you still in school? So you were going to school while you're at Safran. Were you still in school while you were doing this project or had you already graduated? Uh, I was at the tail end. I
1: did most of my major coursework and then it was just a point where I had to sit there and fill in, you know, one or two pieces that I couldn't get because I was working full time and, and trying to do school at the same
0: time. And uh, how difficult I also worked while I was, I also worked while I was getting my master's degree and I worked shift work when I was doing that. I was in the salt mine when I was doing it and it wasn't very common people to do that because it was really hard to work out, get the schedules worked out, right? How hard was it for you while you were in school to work full time? And when each new semester came up, coordinating your schedule so you could take the right classes and still meet your work obligations.
1: Luckily enough, at the time, the management that, that I was working with at Saffron, they, they were really, really good. So I, when when I actually went back and said, okay, I went back full time for one year and, and then went back in the summer and went back to Saffron. And then an opportunity to come up in the machine shop to allow me to work shift work. And so they allowed me to work straight afternoons while I was sitting there going to school throughout yeah. the day. And then... I can sit there and move around within the shop. So I ended up funny enough for a year doing production assembly of landing gear. So, you know, there's 45 F-18s out there that were assembled by my hands.
0: Dude, rocking.
1: (laughs) Those landing gear. Um, But in that area, they let me work uh, like four, 10 hours and they were really flexible on my hours. I didn't even have to sit there and and do 40 hours a week. They would let me, you know, if you can only do 30 this week because of your school load or whatever, just do 30. Right. And so they were super, super flexible. That oh, way. wow.
0: Yeah. Did you, so you graduate, how long after you graduated? So you're, this is 2000s, you graduated 2004 And then how long after that did you go back to Durham and teach?
1: Officially, I, officially I had the graduation ceremony in like July and then I was teaching in September.
0: Holy shit. So let me ask you this. The, I think the big the big thing is what did what did you teach differently based on what they taught you so based on when you took what you learned working and you coupled it with your education and looked at the curriculum, was there any anything in the curriculum that you you taught a little bit differently based on what you had experienced in doing the actual work?
1: Yeah, absolutely troubleshooting uh, because I was taking sort of the first and second year courses. One of our one of our um, basically like automation controls one was a lot focused on this is how you can, you know, here's your your wiring diagram, and then you can sit there and go through and troubleshoot issues. And we had this big troubleshooting demonstrator panel where you can simulate broken circuits and, and whatnot. And so being able to sit there and just architect um articulate methodologies about how to sit there and understand that circuit, go through it and and understand where the, where the faults are and and whatnot. I think, I think having that, that, you know, real life world experience on situations like that happening and being able to translate it to that made it a lot easier for people to sit there and understand.
0: So I'm looking at the, your bio here. So if I get this right, you did, you did basically, aerospace then you moved into tier 1 automotive yeah right? and then you moved and then you went you were it looks like you were in tier 1 automotive a long time and then you then you went into uh is it fuel nuclear, right? nuclear. 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 okay got it and um and so what what are you doing
1: now uh technical coordinator for a company called chemical fuel manufacturing so i sort of oversee maintenance and and plant and capital projects and what we call process engineering, which is basically manufacturing engineering.
0: So let me ask you this question. This is a little off the beaten path, but I, I like to ask everyone, this. when someone asks you what you do for a living, I always joke about this all the time. When someone says, Hey, you know, Walker, what do you do? You know, it, it could take me 20 minutes to explain what I do. So how do you give them, what is your elevator pitch that you give to them? The 30 second explanation of what you do. I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> Are we all? I always say, have you ever watched how it's made? I always say this. This is what I start saying now. You ever watch how it's made? And they say yes. I go, Well, I started out doing the uh, writing the programs that make those machines run. And now what I do is I said, Have you ever seen a point of sale system like at a at a Starbucks or something? They say yes, you know, the little touch screens and stuff. Now what I do is I combine the data that's collected through those really smart machines with like something that looks like a point of sale system that's basically the way i explained it but it's funny when every time i ask somebody in automation how they explain it they either don't have an explanation and they go i'm just an engineer or they have some funny quirky response you know so how did you find our community so where did where did the where did jp and the industry 4.0 community and the mastermind program intersect
1: um, basically out of, uh, you know I I'm sitting there working on a lot of our MES stuff and, and whatnot. Um, as it was developing, we have t- two different plants that, that we deployed MES through. And then connecting them at the enterprise level. Once I got to that enterprise level and having let's say those two ignition gateways sit there and talk to each other, and then having differences in this gateway and having differences in that gateway, like within the data models, because each you know each one has its little nuances and stuff like that, and then sitting there and saying, Hey, you know. I want to be able to sit there and architect, you know, self-aware UIs and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, in order to be able to do that, then I got to have consistent data models and, and all this kind of jazz. And then especially when the when the two gateways connected to, to the enterprise gateway and then coming up with, the, you know, this one sort of unified data space. And then I, when I went out searching for it, I, I came across, I think it was... I remember seeing your rant a long time ago. Everybody talks about the rant and, and whatnot. And I remember that one. I've seen that one a long time ago, but I think it was one of your UNS videos, right? And then I watched it and I'm like, oh shit, that's exactly what's in my head right now. And I'm like, okay, well, this makes perfect sense. <laughs>
0: Tony, that that rant video, the ER, whatever it is, uh, ERP rant video, that was totally unplanned. That was literally, Zach came into my office, said, Walker, come out here he said if i asked you to go on a rant what would you go on a rant for right now and i said oh erp is not the center of the universe i said that is that's what i would be you know um in terms of uns it's funny a lot of people ask why why did you not do more U- unified namespace videos in the beginning and i said well in order for a unified namespace to resonate right you're you're different you got to the uns on your own right you it was a natural evolution for you. I believe, by the way, you, you know, fourth industrial revolution is a natural thing. It's not something we created. It's, it's part of technological advancement and it happened. It would happen over and over and over and over again. Right. If we, you know, if you have sentient beings and stuff,
1: uh, to me, to me, it's just, it's just natural. Like if you sit yeah. there and break it down and, and you know, the, the simple sort of by word analogies that everybody's using, you know, industrial 1.0, we learned how to make things. Right. right. 2.0 capitalists took over, took the one thing that we made, put it in the multiples and use that for, for, yep. for scale production, right? 3.0, okay, this is costing us too much. Let's, with technology has evolved, let's automate the crap out of it, yep. and that's 0, right? Well, now we've taken all the humans out of it, we've automated it, so now we have our business and what's left, we need to make all of that more efficient. So your business processes and, and everything else like that, right? right? I mean, it's a natural evolution,
0: yeah. Agreed. So, uh, let in this second, I want to go over this, this thread because I think we're at the point where we can get into this technical discussion. So, I went over, I'm actually gonna um read a couple of uh, like an exchange that you had with uh, um, Russ from Tulip. It ultimately ended up with Russ from Tulip. Um, that's his actual at Russ from Tulip in Discord. Uh, but also Richard, I don't know if it's Richard Pye or Richard Fee, or but he's from. It looks like he's might be from Sesame. But your original question is, and I, by the way, I think this has been your biggest contribution to the community thus far. That was going to be one of my questions, like, hey, what do you think? But I actually think you're you're really driving the machine level discussion about your machine level information and data models in in the community, right? So your original question was the topic of UNS, actually it's just a comment. The topic of unified namespace and semantics and ontology is giving me a headache. Is anyone working on developing equipment data models at the controller level that work up to ultimately supporting the unified namespace? Right. So uh and you said I'm talking about before it gets to a protocol. So like for the The lay person out there, like in the control logics platform, this would be user defined data types or add on instructions, right? Are you working on, you know, um, creating reusable data models or information models. The difference between data and information is that data is going to be a data model would just be a raw value. There's nothing calculated about that. Information is the transformation of data into something you could act on. If you can act on a data point on a specific value, that is information. Information always means that you can act on the value as opposed to data, which it's raw and it has to be transformed in some way for you to be able to act on it, to make a decision. So when you say a data model, you're talking about the raw stuff. When you're talking about information model, you're talking about the thing you could act on. so Richard Phi, or Phi, it, it's it's Richard P-H-I. Um, he's got a photo and stuff. I, I've never seen him in there, but he makes a good point here. He talks about Sesame's marketplace concept is also something interesting that aims to address this by making available in a marketplace equipment model. So have you looked at Sesmi? Yeah. Okay. And Actually, in fact, I think the guy, the president of Sesmi, I think he was, I think he was former Rockwell president in Canada, or something. I actually wasn't he? He had some Canada connection. Um,
1: sure. Cause I know, like, I know uh, I'm on one of the, a lot of the working groups, and Conrad's on there, and he's obviously from SESMI and, and whatnot. So I'm aware of them and, and know what they're talking about.
0: So for people who don't know SESMI, just real quick, it is think smart manufacturing institute. It is funded by the US government. I think the original chunk of money that they gave says me, but it's a standalone entity. It's not a governmental entity. It's, it's a standalone. I think they're not for profit. I'm pretty sure they're not for profit. They are funded by the federal government. Um, and their goal is to create interoperability in smart manufacturing. Uh, I think it's in the United States might be in North America. Um, it is the leadership is a former, um, Rockwell guy. Although I think I, I think it's more accurately to describe him as a Rockwell defector. Um, he understands what was wrong with the way Rockwell went to market. And one of the things that se- says me has a platform, I can't remember the name of it, but it's actually a really cool platform. They have, they have this platform for basically building digital solutions. The technical architecture is really based, initially, I think it was based on OPC UA. It kind of still is, but they their whole goal was to create a community where people could create information models and data models. I think they call them profiles. They call them profiles where you could build machine profiles that could be consumed by their platform. So JP could build a machine profile for say a a CNC machine and it would be a CNC machine using this FANUC controller. That profile you could upload to their marketplace and then other people could download it and use it when integrating that same piece of machinery with Sesmi's platform. Okay. So that's sesme They got a lot of really cool things going on. And I, I've met with them many times. We've tried to partner on some level. The My fundamental issue is they're still centered around OPC UA everywhere, um, even though they do recognize the limitations. But so he made that comment about Sesmi had, did you have you looked at SESME's profiles or that profile model or anything like that in terms of trying to relieve your headache centered around semantics and ontology?
1: I I have, but the problem is, is everybody that's sitting there saying, "Hey, we've got something here," they're talking about individual assets. So okay, yeah, it's great to sit there and say I have a data model for a robot. It's great to say I have a data model for a CNC machine. But you know, I'm in I'm in assembly automation, right? We take those units, build them up into a custom piece, right? And then I have this whole new top level asset that I need to sit there and build a data model for, right? And describe it, right? And if you sit there and you go and look at like factory automation for for assembly automation, there's nothing out there, right? Because Mm -hmm. the machine builders that are doing it. And I know I work with some of the, the world's best machine builders and I know exactly what they're doing and I know what their data model is. Sorry, so. oh,
0: and, and the problem the machine builders have, I think you hopefully agree with this. The problem that they have is that it's not that the machine builders aren't going to ship their equipment IOT ready. It's that the customers aren't asking them to ship it IOT ready. What they're doing is asking them to cut the cost by 10%, no matter what the cost is. They're going in when they're when the machine builders are building a machine, you've got your purchasing guy. And he's got his little strategy for reducing cost. And he, <laughs> no matter what, no matter what you quote initially, they're like, cut 10%, right? So what's the first thing that machine builders cut? It's, it's add-ons. It's value the customer needs long-term, but they don't need at this exact moment. And therefore, it becomes a, um, a casualty of the cost-cutting process, right? Um,
1: they're not paying for it.
0: That's right. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, but the, the future should be machines, you know, you plug a machine in, you, you turn it, it's not the future. It's today. You plug the machine in, you point it to an infrastructure, you turn it on and data streams and it streams in the structure that works for your business. I want to read. So you said, I think the machine tool scene is coming around, at least our, around our way. It seems to be my point is that from a data model perspective, machine tools are somewhat predictable. And they are very much, right? Uh, there are some differences in control from say, Swiss to Milturn and, um, and whatnot, but a lot of the functions and the data are the same across the board. So it's easy to build a model that works for that space, but with custom stuff in different pe- which is different pieces smashed together to make functions, so those data models almost become use case by use case. Just looking to see if others are playing in this space. We are starting to, and we're seeing some untapped upside. Brian Pribe said, uh, from Mastermind as well, he said, JP, yes, it's a bit of a broad topic because there's a lot of different machines and different methods for structuring your data models. Brian goes as much object-oriented as possible to represent the physical machine. This I actually really like this exchange that you guys did. He said, I go as much object-oriented as possible to represent the physical machine. So he's saying... Controller forward slash valve manifold forward slash one, two, three clamp. Right. And your response to him was, I'm thinking a little bit differently, more along the lines of equipment forward slash function forward slash function type forward slash attributes or something to that effect. Like you said, it's a broad topic. So for, for the layperson here, what we were talking about is how to structure data and information so that every time I put an apple in my business. Every time I put an apple on the plant floor and that apple is a machine but it's shaped like an apple, every time I put it in an apple put it down on the plant floor, it, it's going to it's going to stream its data in the apple format so that anything that's consuming that data and information can consume it as an apple. And the, a really good example would be here, I may have three different types of apples on the plant floor. I may have a Granny Smith I may have a red delicious. I may have a enter in some other type, you know, Yukon apple, right? And the the first step, the what Brian Pryby is saying is, let's just convert all three of those apple types into the one common apple so that they'll each look like the exact same apple. What you're saying is, is that no, I should be able to tell that this one is a, a Granny Smith this one is a Yukon, and this one is a Red Delicious. Both can be used together, right? So, and, and this is the, the thing about the unified namespace. And I want to go to your point. Again, what you were saying is equipment, which is asset forward slash function on the asset forward slash function type forward slash attributes. The attribute is what's going to tell you what type of Apple it is. So you can structure it so that, one, two, three clamp equals Apple, but there's an attribute that tells us what type of Apple it is. And when I was looking at this exchange, I'm like, I think a layperson who's reading this is going to think you guys are saying two different things. And I look at it and I think you're saying an extension of what he's saying, except yours is asset centric and his is equipment centric or not equipment, hardware centric, because it's controller, right? Controller centric, where yours is equipment. The reason yours is a more effective approach is because your model takes into account what already exists in organizations. If you go into an ERP system, an ERP system is built one, only one of two ways. So that is the way data is managed. The, the business is structured. Way number one is it's product lifecycle management centric. So the product is the center of the universe. So my My primary key is my new product and everything is connected back to the product. The manufacturing step, the quality check, everything is centered back to the product. The other way is asset centric, where the business is really built around assets and products are just things you make on those assets. The the asset centric model is far more common, much, much, much more common. The the product lifecycle management is much more rare because that's only dependent upon if you're making highly complex but very few products, right? That's where you're seeing PLM as opposed to asset-centric. Yours is built. I that your structure is perfect there, right? Is it? It's built for the asset-centric model. Let me ask you this. So this conversation before we get into Russ from Tulip, I want to talk about information the conversation we said we were going to have. You had this conversation in December, okay, talking about, hey, I'm, ha- I'm getting a headache here. On how do I structure data for equipment if I'm using a unified namespace? What have you learned between December and now? And if you were to re- have the same conversation, how would it have changed between you, um, Richard Fee, and Brian? Is there anything that you've learned or constructed or developed in the six months? that would have changed this conversation
1: i think i i likely answered my own question i, I think you know, surveying the industry and understanding what's going on out there the, the answer is is um you need to build it for your own needs right then just build it for what works for you because if you sit there trying to you know not copy, but, but if you sit there trying to look for the perfect model or whatever, you're just going to sit there and spin your wheels, right. Instead of actually getting shit done. Right. So, so, so
0: I, I would, I would say this, so I'm going to, I'll read the, what Russ from Tulip said. So he, Russ dropped in and he said, I, I liked this contribution here a lot, but I think he and I are going to disagree in a, in a key area. Um, so he said, we talk sometimes about a quote unquote federated model. Okay, so for your 10 data item use case, there might be one or two that are genuinely implementation specific. So he's saying if you've got 10 um, assets or pieces of equipment or even functions within a piece of equipment, if you've got 10 of those things, only maybe one or two of them are going to be genuinely custom that is specific to that asset. And then you'll have three or four of those that are industry-specific, okay? Uh, so like industry-specific really would be chemical industry or pharma, right? An, an electronic batch record information model in life sciences looks the same, basically the same no matter what, organizi- what pharmaceutical company you go to, uh, or like a... Uh, Uh, a bioreactor. A bioreactor is a bioreactor is a bioreactor there. There's no difference in life sciences. Right. And then he said, and then you'll have several that are generic. So like stuff like ID or temperature or batch forward slash IOT should basically never be a one-off because it's easy to use accepted models and it gives you portability and future proofing. It's a federated model because it blends data definitions from you, your industry and generic data management practices. And JP's response was, yeah, that's, that's where I think my head is at. Also, for some reason, I'm stuck on the idea of organizing this data as much as makes sense in the controller so it can just be pulled into OPC versus having to define every new instance. And then Russ's final comment was, yeah, you can't contextualize the data retrospectively after you've pulled it out of the context. So I looked at this when I read this thing, I, I thought, I have never seen. In my whole career, um, even the EBR, so even the electronic batch record, between say a company like Pfizer or Moderna, right? You take two companies everyone knows. If you look at the EBR in both of those companies, I'm going to say the information model for an electronic batch record, which all for those of you who don't work in life sciences, the batch record is sort of the, it's the source of truth for a manufacturing production run of a drug. The batch record gets. It's sort of the thing that goes with that drug that was manufactured in that bioreactor, that specific one. And when you print it on the label, when you notice when you have a, you take, open up like a Tylenol or something and you look at it, there's a lot number and stuff. That lot number ties to a batch record and that takes you all the way back. So you can see every single thing that happened as it related to making that one pill you're about to pop in your mouth, right? Even between like Moderna and Pfizer, those are only. 85 to 90% congruent. Right? So 8 9 out of 10 things are going to be the same. Now, that may sound like a lot. But over the course of many 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 many, many products or many 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 prices, pr- processes. If I use a standard EBR model that someone defines for me, okay? What is Moderna and Pfizer going to do when that model doesn't meet their manufacturing needs. They're going to do one of two things. They're either going to add to that model or they're just going to build their own. Okay? And that is the most common ex- or that is the most standardized example I can think of. And maybe you you worked in nuclear, so maybe you can think of another example like that I you know, I can't think of, but I have never seen an information model that is 100% common or a data model that is 100% common across industries, even in same verticals ever. Do you agree? Disagree? Your comments.
1: No, I, I totally agree. Right. Like, even regardless of industry. I mean, take a look at who's out there right now trying to come up with these and I'll go back to, you know, the OPC foundation and, and companion specifications. <laughs> I tell you, We use, you know, I've used a lot of vacuum pumps in my history and i think we work with some of the the top vacuum pump manufacturers they're not building vacuum pumps with the opc vacuum pump companion specification right like just doesn't exist right why so, is that
0: what's the reason oh uh, to me i
1: i you know i think it's just fundamentally there's there's these not niche, but, but just key vendors that are, that are sitting there saying, okay, we're going to get together, come up with these specifications and then push our product. Right. But for, and that might work for 10% of the market, but the other 90% of the market is sitting there going, what's going on guys.
0: And the other thing is, is think about what the competitive advantage is for manufacturers. It's innovation. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, people who, you know, I may make a widget and I make it better than everyone else for the next 18 months and the next 24 months. But the, the competitive advantage for manufacturers is the, is the ability for them to squeeze more out of what, out of, if they've got a stone, their, their competitive advantage is is their operational ability to squeeze more blood out of that stone. Right. It's, that is what manufacturing is. And so I may ship a vacuum pump with 11 key functions, 11 data points. And, but through operational need, people on the plant floor may add a 12th or 13th functional capability to that vacuum pump, whatever it is. You know, it could be maybe collecting relative humidity from the, the, you know, the air or whatever. Who knows what it is? But you see this all the time. Go, uh, if you look at a, uh, go to any electrical panel, right? go to any any electrical panel that's been installed for 10 years and open the cabinet does it look exactly the same way it did 10 years before not no, a chance. not a chance one one reason it's it probably looks like spaghetti because of troubleshooting drag pulling on wires to find you know which which block it it's it's screwed into but also it's been added to you've added capabilities in that panel now if I've got a data model, that was for that panel and was from some standard from 10 years ago. And then I've added to it. What do I do with the thing I added to it? And the answer is if I use a standard model, I don't do anything. I just lose, I just lose that. This is where the unified namespace comes in. It, it, unified namespaces grow. I was just telling this to one of my business development people. They extend and grow with the innovation of your business. Right. I mean, that's I, I think I agree with you that. The standards are good. they give us a starting point, but a standard that isn't flexible is useless. right?: Absolutely. And
1: you take a look at what's going on with technology today, right? You take a look at what's going on with the OEM sensor vendors, right? They are pushing technology further and further down the stack into the sensors, right? That is enable us to sit there and take that sensor technology. Deploy it down on the machine and now I'm going to have new analytics that I'm going to be able to sit there and run my machine learning on or do whatever right and to your point right we're trying to squeeze blood out of a stone and so we're going to sit there and look for any possible advantage we can to eliminate or reduce downtime or gain insight on how to operate our equipment right and so. with with as technology evolves and we get these new capabilities, right? Like six, a good example, they're coming out with a small little sensor for grippers that has an accelerometer on it, right? So now you get, you know, opening and closing times right down at the sensor level, right? My PLC doesn't have to calculate that. I can get resolutions down in the milliseconds,
0: right? And it's so cheap for them to do that. Like when you ask the sensor OEM, how much did you have to invest in installing that intelligence on that sensor. They'll tell you, "Oh, all the investment was in the R&D in getting, you know, what what tech are we going to put on there and how will we structure the data and what protocol are we going to use? All the money was spent just in that R&D, but to actually manufacture at scale, it's pennies on the dollar. It's mm-hmm. it, it's marginally increasing the cost of that sensor, but it, that marginal increase of cost is providing exponential return for their clients in terms of converting data events all around the business into information for optimization you know sure. um, but- one other question for you as related to uh, what you do today you know wh- what are some key projects you're working on right now or you know without you know giving away the farm but what are what are what are some of the key things that you're working on as it relates to industry 4.0 today? And and, and and how has your your membership in this industry 4.0 auto community helped drive some of the decisions you're making um, with those those specific projects? I, th- I
1: think the memberships, I think it's just helped reaffirm that I'm headed in the right direction and whatnot, right? But uh, to me, you know, without getting into specifics, Self-aware UIs is a big thing, right? And 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 what that self-awareness is focused on, you know, I almost sit there and think that I'm building a a UNS UI on top of the UNS, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, but a lot of my focus is around, I'm sitting there trying to sit there and say, you know, what does my business look like in five years? And, and how, does, how does the life of a industrial maintenance mechanic or an electrician, or an operator or a quality engineer or a manufacturing engineer, what does their life look like from five years from now, right? And the one thing' I'm, I'm trying to sit there and, and and fight or not fight but but try to sit there and, and architect around is is the death by a thousand apps uh-huh. And that's you know that's where I think there's a huge strength on the UNS where, where you know, if you have all your nodes in the ecosystem publishing relevant information for my my operations into that UNS, right? Then can I give those point of, uh, you know, those end users one one pane of glass to sit there and do their day to day operations uh-huh. and get rid of all the noise? And, and-
0: have you ever have you ever had to carry two two smartphones forever? You know, like a personal smartphone and a work smartphone. Have you ever? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. I use this example. You talked about the death by a thousand apps. I, use, I try to use this example as the illustration, why you can't do that, why there has to be a single pane of glass, a single point of entry on common infrastructure. And it really boils down to this. People who have to use multiple tools to get the data and information that they want is going to eventually, they will eventually gravitate to the one that is most useful and they will ignore the other ones, even if. The most useful one doesn't have all the data and information they need. It's the same thing when you're carrying multiple phones. You you're going to you're only really going to use the phone that is most useful to you. So if it's your work phone and it happens to have all the the majority of the data and information you need, then it's your work phone is going to be the one that's it's the one you're going to keep in your pocket and your personal phone you're going to forget. Oh yeah, I didn't bring it this time it it's the same concept it's and i don't know why it is it clearly has to be some type of psychology for human beings but human beings aren't going to walk around you know we don't carry four laptops and we don't we don't carry three or four phones with us single pane of glass is so unbelievably critical and single pane of glass single point of entry for all data and information that you need doesn't work if you don't have a common data infrastructure underneath it. And that's the unified namespace. But I don't know how you you, you feel about that that illustration, but it's- yeah, No, no, no. I,
1: I think you're right on the money, right? I mean, it, it's 2022, right? We shouldn't be sitting there cluttering people's minds with 300 different applications, right? And there's no excuse in this day and age not to have applications interoperably talk to each other. That's right. right? And the visualization front-end part I mean, that's peanuts nowadays,
0: right? Yeah. Like yep, especially with no code. I mean, especially with all the various no code solutions out there that will interact with one another through common technology. So you know, again, Russ from Tulip, I'm a huge fan of Tulip's platform, right? I, I love Tulip's platform. The limitations of Tulip are just around uh, some functions and capabilities that are not easily built. In you know this is why I'm much more of an ignition guy and a factory, you know, frameworks guy because I don't really have any limitations of what I can build there. But Tulip is of all of the cloud SaaS based solutions that interoperate with the technology we're talking about, they get it right the, more than anyone else. If you look at Microsoft, they wanted to create the single pane of glass through like Power BI, Power Apps, and Azure, right? That was the whole point. The problem was the technological approach they took to acquiring the data that you're going to put in those apps and there's too much of it you had to leave you had to lose because they used the digital thread approach they forget the everybody was forgetting the whole point that it's not just the data that's in your equipment isn't the, on, the only data that matters and so as you move it as you move data up a stack you add to it Applications add to it. MES gives you context to sensor data that you didn't have otherwise. OEE is a really good example. Guess what? Machines, the the thing that collected the sensor data, the PLC that collects the sensor data can benefit from that OEE calculation, right? You You can also write edge level automation that can be a function of what is our OEE calculation right now, and I have an option. I can do that two ways calculate OEE in that PLC controller, which is a terrible idea, or do it at a higher level and report it. Well, how do you do that? You don't do that in digital thread. Azure, Microsoft and stuff, they consume data straight up. Then they have this data lake, they put this analysis layer on top, and they assume, they never understand that applications apply context. Software, as you're moving up the stack, applies context. And all the things that added context to the data as the, as the data moves up the stack can benefit from the result, the KPI that you created. And you have to have a mechanism for the thing that added to also be able to consume. And this is the fundamental problem. This is why UNS and UNS-driven architecture is, is the way to go, because all you have to do is just extend. If I publish, I can also subscribe. So I can publish something that someone else is gonna use they publish the result and I and I subscribe to the result. And and it's 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 a it's a completely edge-driven thing that doesn't require engineering at multiple points, you know. So
1: well, yeah, and, and too many, too many people assume that, oh, okay, well, you know, Power BI is a good one. Well, we're just gonna report everything out through Power BI. Well, do you know that? Like, like what if what if people over here have a different use for that
0: information, right? When when what happens when Power BI can't give you everything? that you're looking for. You're gonna, you're not gonna go, you're not just gonna shrug your shoulders, you know, you're and go, oh, well, I guess I just won't want that. You're gonna go buy some tool that'll give me the thing that's missing. And this is why you end up with one, you know, I mean, I can only imagine your your organization must've had, you know, I mean, if you, uh, one of my favorite questions to ask companies is how many different pieces of industrial software do you use? And once they start putting together their lists, it's crazy. I mean, it's generally hundreds to thousands of different pieces of software, you know, different pieces of intelligence, you know? So,
1: yeah.
0: yeah. All right, man, JP, thank you, dude. This was fun. I actually would love to have you on again. And we do the whole session Um, where we, maybe we brought a functional specification. We read the functional spec in, in terms of data modeling and information modeling. And we we do a, like a live development, we create the data model and information model for a fictional asset. And, and we, and we do it without planning it. So I come with what I know, you come with what, you know, and we just do it. I think the, the community would really like benefit from that. That would be a really cool session if you'd be interested. So. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'd I'd be game for that anytime. All right. Awesome. All right, brother. I appreciate you. Um, Hey, remember everybody, uh, like, subscribe, comment down below. That really helps the algorithm. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Later. All right, we're clear. Uh, Let me stop recording.